It was almost real. The Pro Wrestling History Podcast, Episode 18. Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to professional wrestling history between 1870 and 1920. And in this episode, I will look at one of the more famous shoot contests of the 1920s. So we're going to actually dwell into 1923 today to look at the match between John, the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesek, and the college and Olympic champion, future Hollywood actor, Nat the Panther Pendleton. But first, I just wanted to give a quick update. You'll notice if you're a regular listener to the podcast that this podcast is coming out a week late. Unfortunately, I have still been struggling with the schedule, but I have committed to getting two episodes out a month, so this one is just a week late. Fortunately, we had five Mondays in January. The next episode on February 13th will be about a professional wrestling match in the 1880s between the, I'm sorry, no, it was 1891, but it's between a former American heavyweight wrestling champion and a future world heavyweight boxing champion, but it is not a mixed style bout. It is actually a wrestling match, and we'll talk about that. So just to kind of dive right into this week's subject matter, John of the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesek was a capable wrestler who wrestled primarily in the teens, 20s, and 30s. And he disliked the work nature of professional wrestling. But unfortunately for him, he missed his window to get into more legitimate contests because he didn't get into professional wrestling until the mid-teens when it was 19-teens, when it was pretty much a work sport from that point on with the occasional double cross or agreed-upon contest. And this is Tonight, we're going to talk about one of these rare agreed-upon contests. But to set up the background for how we got to this point, this match occurred because of a feud between Jack Curley, who was the established New York City promoter, and Billy Sandow, Tootsmont, and Ed Strangler Lewis, better known as the Goldust Trio. Curley was a giant in professional wrestling promotion, If he's not the first, he's definitely the most famous and most established local promoter in professional wrestling. He established a New York City promotion in the mid-19-teens. There were one or two promoters before then promoting local cities, but they never had the impact or the staying power that Curley did. And Curley, because of his control in the New York City office and his relationship with other promoters such as Paul Bowser in Boston, um, Tom Pax in St. Louis, he would control professional wrestling during the late teens and the early 20s, including controlling who was the world heavyweight champion. And his control of the world heavyweight champion bred resentment with the Gold Dust Trio, which originally was just Ed Strangler Lewis 
and Joseph Tutsmont, but in late 1921, early 1922, Tutsmont joins in with Lewis and Billy Sandow, and they form the Gold Dust Trio. Mont serves primarily as Lewis's sparring partner and as a promotional genius helping Sandow manage the wrestlers, including Lewis. There's a whole stable of wrestlers that Sandow had under contract. Sandow and, to a lesser extent, Lewis and Mont resented the control Curly had over professional wrestling and decided that they were going to try to control the sport themselves, and they set up a unique system of booking that they functioned like one of the first booking offices, but they also charged an exorbitant fee for that, and they would not let established promoters like Curly use his wrestlers on their cards. When Lewis came to New York to defend his title, uh, Curly could not use any homegrown talent that he'd been promoting like Vladek Zabisco and had to use Curly's, not Curly's, Curly had to use the Gold Dust Trio's contracted wrestlers on his cards and could not secure a title match for his homegrown stars like Vladek Zabisco against Lewis, which had created a lot of resentment. And so in 1922, they're kind of on the outs business-wise. Curly sees an opportunity to get even with them with a professional wrestler by the, or a rookie professional wrestler by the name of Nat Pendleton. Nat Pendleton was a wrestler for Columbia University who won several Eastern titles and competed in the 1920 Olympics in freestyle wrestling for the United States. Pendleton brought home a silver medal but should have had a gold as the decision was severely disputed, and it was considered one of the biggest robberies in Olympic history. Curley, knowing Pendleton's legitimate credentials, starts making challenges to Lewis and any of Sandow's other wrestlers because he figures that in a straight contest, Pendleton is so much better than them in just straight wrestling skills of takedowns, pins, etc., that they can't handle him. Much like the same reasons that in the 1970s, nobody thought any wrestler could stretch Jack Briscoe because Briscoe could control where the match occurred, whether standing up or on the ground. And if you were a great submission wrestler and that was your strength over Briscoe, he could keep the match standing and you could never have a chance to apply the hook or the submission. There are a few standing submissions, but most submissions you have to have the person on the ground to actually apply them. <clears throat> Curly had the same thought. Yes, Lewis and several of the other guys were really skilled submission wrestlers, a skill Pendleton hadn't really been exposed to too much, but Pendleton was such a great wrestler and could keep from being taken down by any of these uh, guys who were skilled wrestlers too, but not nearly on the level. There's different levels, and they weren't nearly on the level of Pendleton when it came to takedowns. Pendleton could take them down at will, and they could only take Pendleton down with great difficulty. So Curley was extremely confident and continued to challenge Lewis. Lewis was willing, but as with any of the other challenges that came from people, Sandow was not willing to risk his cash cow going up against 
an, uh, an unknown challenge like Pendleton. But he was willing to, once again, use someone that both Curley and he had used in the past in these legitimate contests, and that was John the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesic. While not the same level as Lewis as a submission wrestler, he was still one of the top three or four submission wrestlers in professional wrestling at the time. Probably only behind Stecker and maybe Mont. But he was uh, had, had a little bit of a developed mean streak too. But going into this match with Pendleton, he is going to be the underdog. For the same reasons that people thought Lewis might be an underdog. It's going to be hard to catch Pendleton with a hook. And it will be even harder to take him down to the ground to be in a position to get a hook. So the men meet in New York City on January 23rd, 1923. All the warring factions put up a total purse of $7,000 to go to the winner. And like many legitimate contests, there wasn't a ton of action, but there was a little bit. Pendleton did not attempt to take Pesek down right away because he did not really want to get down into the ground with him and expose himself to a submission. So twice, Pesek was forced to go for a double arm wrist lock standing, which is much, much harder to get than if you're on the ground with your opponent. But both times, Pendleton was able to shake them off. That's all that really occurred in the first 20 minutes, as they just kind of wrestled around with each other, bullying each other around. Many of the legitimate contests have the guys just pushing each other back and forth, or bullying each other, as I like to, to call it. Trying to disrupt the other one's balance to be able to get something on them. But the only thing that was really attempted in that first 20 minutes or so was the uh, double arm wrist locks from Pesic. And one of the reasons for Pendleton's lack of pursuing is to get this match with Pendleton. Uh, Sandow had to agree that Pesic would pin Pendleton twice within 75 minutes. And Pendleton didn't think there was any way that uh, Pesic could take him down. So he agreed to this and he just wrestled defensively. He just kept Pesic from taking him down, but Pesic really wasn't interested in taking him down. Pesic was interested in going uh, and injuring Pendleton. After they had been wrestling another 10 minutes or so, Pesic acts like he's going to go for a takedown, which causes Pendleton to drop his level a little bit, and Pesic swings around to his back. When he swings around to his back, Pendleton drops and starts to turn around like he's going to turn around on all fours and do an escape. And this time, he leaves his leg behind, which Pesic is able to grab hold of and get a toehold on. Pendleton tries to pull the leg out, but starts screaming, stop, 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 stop. And one of the problems with leg locks is a lot of times, once you feel the pain, the damage has already been done. If you've ever seen a 
Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu match and you see somebody get a leg lock on her, the submission wrestling, and all of a sudden you'll see them start tapping wildly and yelling, and it's usually because the ligament in the knee or the ankle's already been damaged, whether it's been strained or snapped. Usually it's an injury already. <clears throat> Pendleton obviously did not tap quick enough because he was limping noticeably after that uh, Pesek's leg hold and looked to be favoring his ankle. They took a 10-minute intermission, which was standard in those days, and Pendleton comes back, and he's obviously too injured to really continue. But because he is such a competitor, he refuses just to cede the match over to Pesek. So Pendleton <clears throat> answers the bell for the second fall, but it doesn't uh, really matter because Pesek immediately grabs that leg again, and Pendleton had to submit to prevent his leg from being injured further. So the match itself went 35 minutes for the first fall and less than five minutes for the second fall. Pendleton continued wrestling for another uh, year or so, but right after this match, or within a few months of this match, he actually got his first offer, and this is back during the silent days. He made much more of an impression during the talking era. But Pendleton started getting roles as police officers, circus strongmen, uh, somebody who was working for somebody in an enforcer capacity. And he turned this into a film career that had he did almost 100 roles during his uh, Hollywood acting days. <clears throat> because of that, his wrestling schedule started getting thinner and thinner. And within a year, he would only make the occasional appearance and pretty much retired for good around 1925. Pesek continued wrestling for several more years and got crossways with... The Goldust Trio got double-crossed by Stanislaus Abisko in 1925. We've covered that in previous podcasts. But the title was divided from 1925 to 1928. And during 1926, Joe Stecker who almost pretty much retired the belt from 25 when he got it from Zabisco after the double cross to 28 when he wrestled Lewis, wrestled three matches with Stecker, who he trusted. Well, Stecker's trust was a bit misplaced because the first two matches went exactly as they were supposed to. In the second, or in the third match, Pesek tried to double-cross Stecker and steal the belt from him by catching him in a double-arm wrist lock, the one he, the move he tried to use on Pendleton first, and forcing Stecker to tap out, which Stecker had to. <clears throat> had Stecker known that Pesek was going to double-cross him, he would not have put himself in a position to have Pesek be able to lock that on, but he let Pesek lock it on because they were working, and then Pesek cranked it for real and made him tap. However, the referee in this match just disqualified Pesek and saved Stecker's title, uh, causing a riot in the process, and uh, the referee had to run for his life with a bunch of police around him as they tried to get out of the arena because the fans knew that Pesek had gotten ripped off. 
and a lot of historians, not a lot of historians, there was a lot of material about that on the internet and have alluded to the fact that Pesek had trouble finding bookings after that match because he went into business for himself. And I thought that as well while I was started to research the Double, uh, double Crossing the Goldust Trio book. <clears throat> but actually, that's not really what happened. Pesek was still used, um, and he was actually supposed to have a shooting contest with Jim Londis in 1930 that he backed, or 31, that he backed out of, which really ticked off Ed Strangler Lewis, who always alluded that Pesek was scared, which I had trouble reconciling with someone who went in and wrestled two legitimate contests to settle promotional wars in the 1920s. But there was lots of reasons not to want to get into a shooting match with Londis. <clears throat> Londis could hook people, but he was not near the, the level of Stecker or Lewis or Pesek. Pesek, I believe if they'd have had the match, would have won. But you're also legitimately defeating and possibly hurting the biggest box office draw in professional wrestling. You know, do you want to injure somebody and permanently ruin your opportunity to work with them and make a lot of money in the future? So there were lots of reasons for him to back out of that, not just that he was afraid to lose to, to Londos and be embarrassed in front of people. So the real reason <clears throat> Pesic his career starts to wind down in the late 20s and early 30s. He still wrestled sporadically, I think all the way up into the 40s. But he primarily was a part-time wrestler from 1931 or 32 on. And that's because when he was in Australia in 1928, he learned about breeding and raising greyhound racing dogs. And he had such an eye and ability for training, he started training, selling, and racing these greyhound dogs, and he became a millionaire in the process. He made far more money from the greyhound racing than he did from his professional wrestling career. So he concentrated on what brought in the money, and he would wrestle occasionally for the fun of it or if a friend needed somebody to fill out a card, what have you, particularly if it was close to where he was at at the time. So that's really the reason that his wrestling career came to a halt. Promoters still used him even after he went into business for himself against Joe Stecker. So that, that was this is going to be a bit of a short episode, but I wanted to go in depth on, on that because I don't agree with the categorization of Pesic as somebody who was afraid to lose to somebody in front of his peers. Because if he was, he would definitely never have wrestled Pendleton. You know, going into the Marin-Plastina match, both of those guys were pretty equal. So, <clears throat> he had a good chance of winning that match. Which, well, we're not going to go back into that. <laughs> if you're interested in that, ask me a question. I'll tell you more about that match. We covered that in a previous podcast. But the match with Pendleton, he would have been the underdog. And really, it's just like boxing. You know, you have a great boxer, and you got somebody that hits hard. The person that hits hard is called having a puncher's chance. But that means you don't have much of a chance. It's just you might be able to land one of your powerful blows when the boxer makes a mistake. 
It's a similar analogy here. You had a superior freestyle wrestler who was much better at takedowns and defending takedowns, who was going to control <clears throat> where the match occurred, and Pesek had a hooker's chance. He had a chance to apply a submission and get a uh, victory, but it wasn't that great of a chance, but he did pull it off. So um, Pesek has to be counted within the top three to five hookers of the 1920s era. So I don't have a real review this week. I have been watching the world-class stuff from 1983. And I will say now, I thought that things were much better than they were because that was my favorite show after Wrestling at the Chase went off in St. Louis. World-class was really good in 83 and most of 84. When David died, you could definitely see the shows start to lack a little something. <clears throat> but you don't see it in full bloom until 1986. After watching a lot of the territory wrestling, I have to say I think Mid-South had the best wrestling show. Followed by Mid-Atlantic. <clears throat> followed by World Class. Because World Class was great for a couple of years. But in 82, it was mostly the Von Erichs and some aging veterans. And then... After 85, it's a bunch of green people and some older guys and the Von Erics. So I think we have a tendency to look back on our childhood and the things that really got us interested in wrestling and have rose-colored glasses on and not see things as they actually were. Now, saying that, it's better than most of the stuff that I see today, <clears throat> but that's because they're not following through with telling a great story and all so, Royal Rumble was last night, and I only watched one match, and that was Reigns versus Owens. And I think that it's great. This bloodline angle has been the only angle I found really fascinating. It's gotten better since Paul Levesque's been in charge, but boy, it's there's still a lot of wasted time, dead time, things you're not really interested in. But it's much better than it was when Vince was running creative. I like the Bloodline story. I love the idea of having a kind of counterpoint to Roman with the tribal chief Jey Uso. Is Jay going to break off and finally challenge Roman within the family? But the way they set it up is definitely something It's more modern. And... 20 years ago, the main guy who you think is going to challenge the big bad heel won't walk back to the dressing room crying because he's upset that his family has beaten up his, his friend. He would have taken some kind of action, either to pull his family off of him or to stand over him and take the blows himself. Both of those have been done in wrestling in the past. But to just walk down, you know... A, hundred foot aisle that takes forever to get down while your family beats up this guy that's like a brother to you now and his piso that just makes no sense whatsoever so i i still they put a lot of thought into this they've been pretty flawless in the way they've done it and then they get to one of the kind of payoff points and part of it was done so well 
the crowd turned on the tribal chief big time, dropping the F-bombs on Roman last night. And you could, for the first time, <laughs> probably a long time from a wrestling crowd, you could actually feel some heat. That part was good. But if you're going to have Jay kind of be the guy to be challenging Roman, the way they did what he did wasn't very wasn't very all right that's it for this episode of it was almost real the pro wrestling history podcast our next episode will be published on february 13th listen to it wherever your podcast or wherever you listen to your podcast and if you would take time to rate and review i'd really appreciate it the next uh co-hosted show should be that february 27th show Uh, my cousin's been coming up from the country quite a bit So we're just trying to align his, mine, and Caleb's schedule for a longer and uh, hopefully more entertaining show. I hope you got a lot of information out of this and you uh, come back next time. So take care, everybody. Bye-bye.